Section 4 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Colleen McMahon. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. By Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. The First Swiss Struggle for Liberty, A.D. 1308 by f grenfell baker owing to the fact that the house of habsburg had its origin in switzerland the accession of rudolph i founder of the habsburg dynasty to the throne of germany in 1273 with the virtual headship of the holy roman empire was an event of great importance in the history of the swiss cantons to this day the paternal domains whence the habsburg family takes its name are a part of swiss territory the local administration as well as such imperial offices as still remained in the free communities of switzerland were largely in the hands of this family long before it gave sovereigns to the empire itself its chiefs were the chosen champions or advocates of the district of the swiss communities yuri seems to have first established its freedom within the empire and in that canton liberty was most completely preserved from the perils that always threatened switzerland in this period under rudolph it was at first the policy of the empire to secure the attachment of the swiss by making the two other cantons schweiz and unterwalden similarly independent but toward the end of his reign the policy of rudolph was so influenced by ambition for territorial expansion that the swiss began to feel an encroachment upon their independence in twelve ninety one the year of rudolph's death the three cantons fearing danger to their interests in the new settlement of the crown formed a league for mutual protection and cooperation the very parchment on which the terms of this union were written has been preserved as a testimony to the early independence of the forest cantons the magna carta of switzerland the formation of this confederacy may be regarded as the first combined preparation of the swiss for that great struggle in defense of their liberties in the history of which fact and legend as shown in baker's discriminating narrative are romantically blended the empire passed out of the habsburg control when rudolph died but the family again got possession of it in twelve ninety eight when rudolph's son albert was elected german king in the following account the relations of switzerland and austria under the renewed habsburg sovereignty are circumstantially set forth there can be little doubt that most of the many stories related by the swiss of the cruelty and extortion of the austrian baileys are wholly or in great part devoid of historical basis of truth as are the dates given for their occurrence they doubtless sprang from the very natural feelings of hatred the mountaineers of the forest state felt against a foreign master who was probably only too ready to punish them for the part they took against him in the struggle for the imperial throne indeed it was not till about two centuries after this period that any reference to the alleged cruelties of the austrians can be found in the local records though legends about them have been plentiful many and various are the stories that have come down to our times of the oppression and licentiousness of the baileys most of which have probably gained much color by constant repetition even if they were not wholly created by imagination and hatred of the austrian rule according to these accounts 
the local despots imposed exorbitant fines for trivial offenses and frequently sent prisoners to zug and lucerne to be tried by austrian judges they levied enormously increased taxes and imports on every commodity and exacted payments in the most merciless manner they openly violated the liberties of the people and chose every occasion to insult and degrade them an oft-quoted instance of their cruelty is recorded of a bailey named landenberg who publicly reproved a peasant for living in a house above his station on another occasion having fined an old and much respected laborer named henry of melki a yoke of oxen for an imaginary offence the governor's messenger jeeringly told the old man who was lamenting that if he lost his cattle he would no longer earn his bread that if he wanted to use a plough he had better draw it himself being only a vile peasant to this insult henry's son arnold responded by attacking the messenger and breaking his fingers and then fearing lest his act should bring down some serious punishment fled to the mountains and left his aged father to landenberg's vengeance the bailey confiscated his little property imposed a heavy fine and finally burned out both his eyes the hot irons used in this barbarous punishment the swiss are fond of saying went deeper than the tyrant intended and penetrated to the hearts and aroused the sympathies of their ancestors to perform such acts of heroism that tyranny fled in fear from the land the conduct of arnold however can hardly at this period of his life warrant the eulogies bestowed upon his memory though he subsequently figures as one of the men of ruetli landenberg lived in a castle near sarnen in unterwalden where his imperious temper his exactions his cruelties and his debaucheries aroused a universal feeling of hatred among the peasants that culminated in his expulsion and the destruction of his stronghold the latter is popularly believed to have occurred on january first thirteen o eight as the bailey left his castle to attend mass some forty determined peasants who had already bound themselves by oath to free their country at a solemn meeting on the steep promontory over the lake of lucerne known as the ruetli appeared before him carrying sheep fowls and other customary presents and thus gained admission to the castle no sooner were they past the gates than drawing the weapons they had till then concealed beneath their clothes they disarmed the guard and took possession of the fortress other conspirators were admitted and the people at once rose in revolt landenberg hearing while still at church what had occurred managed to effect his escape and fled to lucerne of the other baileys gessler and wolfenscheiss are believed to have excited even more hatred than their colleague landenberg and to have exceeded him in acts of savage cruelty and vicious living one example out of many similar ones will show the spirit in which the swiss traditions have treated the memory of wolfenscheiss on a certain day finding that a peasant named conrad of baumgarten whose wife he had frequently tried in vain to seduce was absent from home wolfenscheiss entered conrad's house and ordered his wife to prepare him a bath at the same time renewing with ardor his former proposals with the cunning of her sex the wife feigned to be willing to accede to his wishes and on the pretense of retiring to another room to undress sped to her husband who quickly returned and slew wolfenscheiss while he was still in the bath after this exploit an entrance was effected into the bailey's castle of rotsburg by one of the conspirators who was in the habit of paying nightly visits to a servant living in the castle by means of a rope attached to her window 
and who then admitted his companions who were lying concealed in the moat. But, probably in consequence of his supposed connection with the legend of William Tell, the Bailey to whom the name of Gessler has been given stands out more prominently in Swiss history than any other. Gessler's residence, according to tradition, was a strongly fortified castle built in the valley of Juri, near Altorf, and this he had named Zwing Juri, Juri's Restraint. He used every means that cruelty or avarice could suggest in his conduct as governor, and incurred additional hatred from the methods he adopted to discover the members of a secret conspiracy he believed existed against him in the district. With this object in view, Gessler caused a pole, surmounted with the ducal cap of Austria, to be set up in the marketplace at Altorf, before which emblem of authority he ordered every man to uncover and do reverence as he passed. The refusal of a peasant to obey this command, his arrest, trial, and condemnation to pierce with an arrow an apple placed on his own child's head, his dexterity in performing this feat, his escape from his enemies, his murder of the tyrant Gessler, the solemn compact sworn at Rutli, and the revolutionary events that followed form the motive of the much-celebrated legend of William Tell. The mythical hero of this shadowy romance has long embodied in his person the virtues of the typical avenger of the wrongs of the poor and the oppressed against the tyranny of the rich and the powerful. His name has been honored and his manly deeds have been lauded in prose and verse by thousands in many lands for many centuries, exciting doubtless many a noble deed of self-denial and spurring to the forefront many a popular act of patriotic daring. In Switzerland, certainly, this picturesque representative of liberty has done much to mold the political life, if not also to write many pages of the history of the people, and that, in spite of the questionable morality of the received narrative of his career and its unquestionable untruth, the emergence of the Swiss from slavery to freedom, as in the case of all other nations, was undoubtedly a gradual process and there is now every reason for believing that the narrative relating to William Tell and the other heroes who are said to have been the prime instruments in the expulsion of the Austrian Baileys from the districts of the Wald State are purely apocryphal, with a possible substratum of actual fact. It is sad for an individual, and still more so for a nation, to lose the illusions of youth, if not of innocence, and to awake to the knowledge of an unbeautiful reality bereft of all fictitious adornment. When, however, the naked truth can be discovered, and that is seldom the case, it must be faced. If the national or individual mind cannot receive it, the fault lies with the immaturity or morbid condition of the former, not with the material of the latter. As the legend of William Tell is more devoid of actual historical foundation, and is more widely known and believed than are the many others related as the records of events happening at the period from which the Swiss date their independence, it may be as well to devote some little space to its consideration. All the local records that might possibly throw some light on the existence and career of Tell have now been thoroughly searched by many impartial and competent scholars, as well as by enthusiastic partisans with the invariable result that, till a considerable lapse of years after the presumed date of their deaths, not one particle of evidence has been discovered tending to prove the identity of either William Tell or of the tyrant Gessler. On the other hand, many local authorities, as early as the beginning of the 15th and 16th centuries, 
when the story was fully established, have gone out of their way to deny its truth and prove its entire falsity from their own researches. Materials, indeed, are many relating to the events that befell the wild state during their conflicts with the Baileys, whom they succeeded in expelling from their country. And it seems in the highest degree improbable that had Tell and his friends lived and taken so prominent a part in effecting their country's freedom, as is popularly assigned to them, they should have been entirely ignored by all contemporary writers, as well as by subsequent ones, for a hundred and fifty or two hundred years. Yet such is the case. William Tell is supposed to have performed his heroic deeds in or about the year 1291, and not till between 1467 and 1474 are his acts recorded, when in a collection of the traditions of the canton of Unterwalden, transcribed by a notary at Sarnen, an account is given of the apple episode and the subsequent escape of the famous archer and his murder of Gessler, though nothing is said of his having taken part in a league to free his country, or of his being the founder of the Confederation. A little prior to the compilation of The White Book of Sarnen, as this collection is called, an anonymous poet composed a song of the origin of the Confederation, in which, though no reference is made to Gessler, the other details are related concerning William Tell shooting at the apple, the revolt of the peasants, the expulsion of the Baileys, and the formation of a patriotic league. It is, of course, quite possible that a Gessler was killed by the peasants, as the name was common enough at the time. But no member of that family, the records of which have now been most carefully traced, held any office under the Austrians at that period in any of the Waldstaat, nor is it at all probable that Austrian baileys governed the districts later than 1231. Neither is it possible for a bailey named Gessler to have occupied the castle at the date assigned, the ruins of which have so long been pointed out as being those of his former abode. So also the celebrated Tell's Chapel on the Wierwaldstatsee at Kusnach was certainly not built to commemorate the exploits of Schiller's and Rossini's Swiss hero. The fact is that in Gessler we are confronted by a curious case of confusion in identity. At least three totally different men seem to have been blended into one in the course of an attempt to reconcile the different versions of the three cantons. Felix Hammerlin of Zurich in 1450 tells of a Habsburg governor being on the little island of Schwanen in the lake of Lowers, who seduced a maid of Schweiss and was killed by her brothers. Then there was another person, strictly historical, Knight Eppo, of Cusenach, who, while acting as bailiff for the Duke of Austria, put down two revolts of the inhabitants in his district, one in 1284 and another in 1302. Finally, there was the tyrant bailiff mentioned in the Ballad of Tell, who, by the way, a chronicler writing in 1510, calls not Gessler, but the Count of Seedorf. These three persons were combined, and the result was named Gessler. Moreover, it is extremely doubtful whether the green plateau of the Rutli below Seligsburg, and some 650 feet above the lake, with its miraculous springs, ever witnessed the patriotic gathering of the 33 peasants, who tradition asserts there formed the league against Austrian rule, or heard the solemn oath they and their leaders, Stauffacher, Fürst, and Arnold, mutually swore. In all probability, the legend of Tell and the Apple originated in Scandinavia and was brought by the Alemanni into Switzerland, as into other lands. Saxo Grammaticus, 
in the Withina Saga, places the scene of a very similar story in that country some three hundred years before the appearance of the Swiss version, and tells of a certain Danish king named Harold, the counterpart of Gessler, and one Toki, who played the same role enacted by Tell. Like legends are also related of Olaf, Indridi, and an almost identical one to that of William Tell of Egil, who being ordered by King Nidung to shoot an apple off of the head of the son of the former, took two arrows from his quiver and prepared to obey. On the king asking why he had selected two arrows, Egil replied, to shoot thee, tyrant, with the second, should the first fail. Neither are similar narratives absent from the legends of other countries. Thus, Reginald Scott says, Puncher shot a penny on his son's head and made ready another arrow to have slain the Duke of Rengrave, who commanded it. So also, similar incidents occur in the tales of Adam Bell, Klim of the Clough, and William of Cloudesley in the Percy Ballads, and in the legends of many places in northern Europe. On this subject, Sir Francis Adams mentions, in a note to his valuable book on the Swiss Confederation, that a well-known citizen of Bern, in answer to his inquiry as to whether Tell ever existed, replied, not in Switzerland. If you travel in the Hasli districts, you will find a distinct race of men who are of Scandinavian origin, and I believe that their ancestors brought the legend with them. To this, it may be added that philologists have long since traced the rude dialect of Oberhasli to its Scandinavian sources, and the physical characteristics of the people mark them as of different racial origin from those around them. At the period these events were in progress, or rather, about the time that the Austrian baileys were expelled, toward the close of the 13th century, the emperor's attention was too fully occupied conducting a war against the bishop of Basel to allow him to enforce his authority among the revolted Waldstate. He did not, however, allow the peasants for long to enjoy the fruits of their energetic and successful action, as some six months later he headed a large army with which he intended to enforce obedience. The expedition thus begun led to Albert's tragic death and reared another step leading to the final independence of the Swiss. On reaching Baden in the Argau, a halt was made in order to deliberate on the best mode of punishing the rebels. Here, a general council of nobles decided, after careful deliberation, on the route to be taken and the nature of the measures best calculated to enforce Albert's authority. On May 1, 1308, the emperor, with a few followers, returned to Rheinfelden in order to visit the Empress Elizabeth preparatory to marching against the Waldstadt. Shortly before this time, Albert had had a violent quarrel with his nephew John, son of Duke Rudolf of Swabia, touching the youth's paternal inheritance, which he persistently declined to allow John to take possession of, and whom he had, moreover, publicly insulted by offering him a coronet of twigs as the only recompense for his just claims. In spite of this quarrel, Albert allowed John and four of his fastest friends to occupy a place in his suite when he left Baden to visit his consort. Albert's disregard of his nephew's resentment was further shown when the party arrived on the bank of the Rus, as he allowed him with his friends to accompany him in the boat in which he crossed the river. The passage was made in safety, but just as the emperor was stepping on shore, near the town of Vindich, John and three of his companions struck him down with their swords, and after inflicting a number of severe wounds, left him for dead. The unhappy monarch expired a few minutes after in the arms of a passing peasant woman. 
all this bloody scene took place in full view of the emperor's train on the opposite side of the river though no one apparently was able to render him assistance probably from the absence of boats and the suddenness of the tragedy the murderers succeeded in making good their escape though two of them were afterward captured and executed as were also a number of innocent people believed to be participators in the conspiracy john himself was more fortunate for disguised as a monk he managed for many years to hide his identity and after wandering in tuscany unsuspected eventually died in a monastery at pisa albert's daughter agnes queen of hungary a woman unacquainted with the milder feelings of piety but addicted to a certain sort of devotional habits and practices by no means inconsistent with implacable vindictiveness fearfully avenged his murder this woman appears to have been seized with a perfectly demoniacal mania for blood and revenge aided by those in authority who feared lest a widespread conspiracy had been formed she seized on the slightest suspicion hundreds of innocent victims and put them to death with all the ferocity of a famished beast members of nearly a hundred noble families and at least a thousand persons of lower rank of every age and of both sexes fell beneath her savage vengeance she is said to have further whetted her appetite for horrors by waiting at farvangen in the blood of sixty-three innocent knights exclaiming the while this day we bathe in maydew but at last after several months even the implacable bloodthirstiness of the hungarian queen was satisfied and the massacre ceased over the spot where albert met his death agnes built a monastery she named it konigsfelden and enriched it with the spoils of her victims here she took up her abode for the remainder of her life and for nearly fifty years practised the most rigid asceticism and here by the side of her parents she was eventually buried konigsfelden stood on the road from basel to baden and zurich and within sight of the castle of Habsburg, the cradle of the house of austria strenuous efforts were made by albert's widow to obtain the succession to the imperial throne for her son frederick duke of austria but the choice of the prince-electors headed by the archbishop of mainz fell on count henry of luxembourg a liberal-minded and generous noble who was accordingly crowned under the title of henry the seventh during the short reign of this monarch he proved himself a wise and generous friend to the swiss whose privileges he confirmed he made no effort to reimpose local governors on the people of the waldstadt but on the contrary confirmed the charters of schweiss and uri granted one to unterwalden and acknowledged jurisdiction after henry's death in thirteen thirteen civil war once more divided the empire through the rival contentions of ludwig louis of bavaria and albert's son frederick of austria in this contest the powerful monastery of einsiedeln sided with the austrian candidate and through its influence induced the bishop of constance to place the large portion of switzerland supporting the bavarian cause under a sentence of excommunication between einsiedeln and the waldstadt there long existed a feeling of bitter hostility the canons resenting the independent spirit displayed by the peasants and the latter remembering the many acts of arbitrary oppression they and their ancestors had suffered at the instance of the abbey indeed actual hostilities were only prevented by friendly though interested mediation of the citizens of zurich who were most anxious to preserve tranquillity in the territories of both in order to allow their trade with italy over the st gothard being carried on 
they also favored peace because since the Habsburgs had refused permission to the peasants to enter Lucerne, these had been in the habit of bringing their cattle and dairy produce through Einsiedeln to the monks of Zurich. The action of the monks, however, in bringing about the serious sentence of excommunication, so roused the spirit of the mountaineers that, headed by their landamen, Werner Stauffacher, they attacked and captured the abbey, ransacked the whole building from cellar to altar, and carried off the monks captive to the town of Schweiss. This daring and sacrilegious act led Frederick, the hereditary avoyer of the abbey, to place the Waldstadt under the further punishment of the ban of the empire. Both these sentences were alike fruitless in bringing the peasants to submission to the House of Austria. Shortly after, on Ludwig ascending the throne, the ban was removed by the new monarch, and with the aid of the Archbishop of Mainz, the Metropolitan of Constance in 1315, the excommunication was also revoked. The triumph of Ludwig's claims over those of Frederick began that long series of deadly conflicts between the Swiss and the House of Austria that led the two nations for so many years to regard each other as natural and implacable enemies. At this time, Austria was governed by Duke Leopold, a man of arrogant, passionate temper, of unscrupulous ambition and brutal cruelty, according to the Swiss Chronicles, but who, from other accounts, does not appear specially to have deserved this character. His hatred of the Swiss was greatly increased by their action in opposing his brother Frederick in the late contest. No sooner, indeed, were the troubles of that contest over than he prepared to wreak his vengeance and once for all crush the power and independence of the forest states, and, as he declared, trample the audacious rustics under his feet. Rapidly collecting his forces, Leopold soon found himself at the head of 15,000 or 20,000 well-armed men, including a large body of heavily equipped cavalry. These latter were then looked upon as the main strength of an army. Most of the ancient nobility of Habsburg, Kyberg, and Lenzburg rallied to his banners, besides many of the lesser nobles and a contingent from Zurich, the citizens of which, deserting their natural allies, had formed a treaty with Austria. Against this formidable array, the men of Schweiss, Uri, and Unterwalden were only able to muster some 1,400 men, who, however, made up for their want of weapons and discipline by the geographical advantages of the country, by their patriotism, unity, and determined bravery. Nothing now seemed to intervene between the Swiss and imminent destruction, when, viewing with a compassion, most rare in those days, the impending fate of the heroic mountaineers, the powerful Count of Toggenburg tried to negotiate a peace with the Duke. Leopold's terms, however, were so humiliating and evidently so insincere that nothing came of these proposals. On November 3, 1315, Leopold's army reached Baden, where a council was held to determine upon the details of the campaign, a campaign having for its object, as the Duke openly declared, the extirpation of the whole race of the people of Waldstadt. The difficulties of the enterprise now began to show themselves, as several of Leopold's followers, being well acquainted with the nature of the country and the characters of the inhabitants, pointed out that both would offer a determined resistance. Finally, relying upon their numbers and superior arms, it was settled to march on Schweiss through the Sattel Pass by Moorgarten, making Zug the base of operations, and while a false attack should be threatened on the side of Arth, Unterwalden should be attacked from Lucerne, as well as by a large force under the Count of Strasbourg by way of the Brunich. 
Leopold himself was to lead the main army and enter Schweiss through the pass. Had these operations remained secret, or been carried out successfully, the course of Swiss history would probably have been very different from what it was. But fortunately for the cause of freedom, the Austrian plans became known in time and failed signally when put to the test. According to ancient chronicles, as the Confederates were hurrying to repel the feint from Arth, a friendly Austrian baron named Henry of Hunenberg shot an arrow amid them bearing the message, Guard Morgarten on the eve of St. Othmar. Be that as it may, the Swiss collected their little band on the saddle, between which mountain and the eastern shore of the Lake of Aguirre is situated the ever-memorable Pass of Morgarten. Here, on the night of November 14th, they collected a number of loose boulders and tree trunks, and then, having offered up prayers for the preservation of their country, they awaited with resolution the coming struggle. With the first dawn of morning, the Austrian army, the first that ever entered the country, made its appearance in the pass, headed by Duke Leopold and his formidable cavalry. Suddenly, when the whole narrow defile was blocked with horse and foot, thousands of heavy stones and trees were hurled among them from the neighboring heights where the peasant band forming the Swiss force lay concealed. The suddenness and vigor of this unexpected attack quickly threw the first ranks of the invaders into confusion and caused a panic to seize the horses, many of which in their fright turned and trampled down the men behind. Rapidly the panic increased as the showers of missiles came tearing down, and soon the whole army was in a state of wild terror and confusion, a condition greatly assisted by the slippery nature of the ground. Then, with wild shouts and brandishing their iron-studded clubs and their formidable halberts and scythes, down the mountainside rushed with the fury of their native avalanche, the heroic Confederates, and falling on their foes, literally slew them by thousands. Many hundreds of the Austrians perished in the lake, the men of Zurich alone making a stand and falling each where he fought. Few succeeded in effecting their escape from what was little less than a general butchery. On that memorable day, all the flower of Austria's nobility lay dead within the country they had hoped so easily to conquer. The duke, with a handful of followers, alone survived, and even these were forced to undergo many perils before they eventually arrived in safety at Winterthur. Neither were the other attacks, under the Count of Strasbourg and the forces from Lucerne, more successful for the invaders. Both armies were repulsed with enormous loss by the men of Unterwalden, who gave no quarter, many of their opponents being their own countrymen from the estates of the Abbey of Interlaken. After these signal victories, the Swiss, according to ancient custom, offered up a solemn thanksgiving to Almighty God for their success and the overthrow of their enemies and then, having laden themselves with the spoils of the dead, they returned to their humble occupations, whence the defense of their country and their lives had called them away. Among the Swiss, Morgarten has always taken the first place in the long record of heroic victories that since 1315 has made the fame of Swiss arms second to none in Europe. This victory at once brought the Waldstate out of their long obscurity, and placed them in the front rank as powerful and respected states in Switzerland. Leopold, on his return to Austria, was so satisfied with the ability of the audacious rustics to defend themselves that he made no further attempt to enter their country. End of section 4